0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for the second part of a two-part episode. If you haven't yet listened to the last episode, episode number 122, you'll want to start there. In this series, Murder Memories, I detail cases of recovered memories. In these stories, witnesses come forward with information about a murder that occurred days, weeks, or even years earlier. They will claim to have forgotten the incident completely, having repressed the memory due to the trauma of witnessing a violent crime or some other factor. When we left off last time, it was November of 1989, and 29-year-old Eileen Franklin Lipsker had made a phone call to the San Mateo District Attorney's Office to report a murder. The murder had taken place 20 years earlier when Eileen was in grade school. In September 1969, her friend, eight-year-old Susan Nason, had gone missing and was found 10 weeks later murdered. Her body had been dumped on the side of a road between Foster City and Half Moon Bay, California. Now Eileen and her husband Barry informed Inspector Charles Etter that Eileen not only knew who the murderer was, but that she had witnessed the crime. The murderer, she claimed, was her own father, George Franklin. This is Chapter 2 of Murder Memories, the recovered memory of Eileen Franklin. About a week after Barry Lipsker had contacted the San Mateo District Attorney's Office to report a murder that his wife Eileen had witnessed in 1969, Detectives Bob Morse and Brian Cassandro flew to Southern California to interview her in person. Over the previous few days, she had given enough details about the cold case to warrant a more thorough interview and see if the Susan Nason murder case could finally be brought to trial. The following account is in Eileen Franklin Lipsker's own words and is taken from the book, Once Upon a Time, written by Harry McLean and published in 1993. Here, I offer an abridged version of her recorded interview. My father was driving my sister Janice and I to school and directly around the corner from my house, I saw my friend Susan just leaving her house, beginning to walk to school, and I asked my dad if Susan could get into the car with us. And he stopped the car, and he let Susan get in, and he made my sister Janice get out. And then he drove around like he was going to take us to school. And then he said that we were going to play hooky that day. We drove for some time, and I remember going past the reservoir, like the way you drive up towards Half Moon Bay. And we drove out. I think he told me we were driving to the woods on a fire road or something like that. And we drove up there and stopped the car. It was a Volkswagen van and it had two front seats with an open area you could walk between. And in the back there was a wooden platform made of plywood with a mattress on it. But we got out of the car and were just walking around. And then we were in the car and Susan and I were bouncing on the bed and playing and running up and back in the car. Then my dad came in and started to play with us, just friendly playing. After a little bit of this, I was in the front seat, and my dad pinned Susan down, and he held her two arms up with both of his and with his elbows straddling either side of her body. He began to rub back and forth on her in a humping motion, and he continued to do this, and I watched from the front seat, and I got really scared. He had pulled her skirt or her dress up, and there was something white underneath it, a slip or an undershirt or something, and I got really scared, and I just rolled up in a ball until he stopped. Then he got up and walked out of the car. After a little while, Susan and I both got out of the car, and she was crying a little bit, just a little bit. She walked a distance from the car where there was a point or a peak, and she was just sitting there, sitting on a rock or sitting on something that was slightly elevated and I was standing next to the car. I picked up something off the ground, something that had fallen off the tree. I was just looking at it. When I looked up, my father had a rock in his two hands, and he was maybe two or three steps away from her and was approaching her. He had the rock above his head. He had his right arm and right leg forward when I looked up, and I could see the sun coming through. I screamed, and Susan looked up, and she saw my dad, And she looked instantly at me and brought her hand to her head i think both her hands to her head he crushed the rock down against her head where her hands were he did a second blow and then i think i started screaming again because he came to me i must have started running because he grabbed me and knocked me onto the ground and held my face down into the ground and told me to be quiet or he was going to kill me i was crying and he told me if i ever told anyone about this he would kill me. They would never believe me. But it was my idea for Susan to get into the car. They would take me away and put me away like they had put my mother away in a mental home. Eileen said she'd seen her father take a spade from the van and dig near where the body was. He then told her to help him take the mattress out of the van, but she wouldn't do it. She went in the van and curled up in the seat with her head down. She didn't see what he did next. He came back into the van and they left. She told her father they shouldn't leave Susan out there because she'd be cold and scared, but he didn't answer her. When they got home, she went into her room. Her sister Janice came in at some point, and she said she may have told her what she'd seen, but she couldn't remember. As the interview continued, Detective Morse saw two discrepancies between Eileen's account and what they knew about the case. First was the location. Eileen said that they had driven off the main road, and up a dirt road for several minutes before her father stopped the van. She said it was a wide dirt road. She believed he'd been up there before with the fire truck. She described where he'd parked as a place where she could see, quote, three trees in a zigzag line, unquote. He asked if they had parked in a turnout, and she said no. But Susan's body was found dumped over the side of the road at a turnout and not near a cluster of trees. Of course, the detectives knew that a 20-year-old memory wouldn't be perfect in its details. But there was a bigger problem, the timeline. Eileen told the detectives that her father had been driving her to school when she saw Susan and asked if they could give her a ride. But Susan didn't go missing until after school on that September day. "'Are you absolutely certain that you didn't go to school that day?' Morse asked her. Eileen said that she wasn't sure if it was in the morning— or if she had come home for lunch and was on her way back to school when she saw Susan. She just knew that she was on her route to school. This didn't jive at all with the timeline. They continued with the interview, and Eileen was questioned about her father, George Franklin. What kind of father was he? Were there any problems in the home? Eileen began to recount for the detectives the years of abuse her mother and siblings had suffered at the hands of her father. She explained that he was an extremely violent man, Once, she had walked into her parents' bedroom and saw her father holding a gun against her mother's head. Eileen also said that her father had sexually molested her once when she was a very young girl. Another fuzzy memory she had was of her father and another man raping her at an apartment in San Francisco. Had she told anyone else about the murder she'd witnessed, the detectives asked. Had she told any family members or friends? Eileen said that she had just recently told a few people about what she had witnessed. Only in the days before she was scheduled to talk to the detectives did she tell anyone she claimed. She told her therapist and then her mother, Leah Franklin. She also told her sisters, Kate and Janice, two of her mother's sisters, and her brother George, but she didn't share many details with him. Before recently, she had never told anyone, not a friend, boyfriend, no one at all over the years. When asked why she decided to come forward now, over 20 years later, Eileen said that the memories about the murder were becoming clearer as of late. In the years before, she just had a vague recollection of the events. She also felt she owed it to Susan's family, to share the information of what had happened to their daughter. Plus, she also wanted her father to get help. He was dangerous, she said, and he shouldn't be walking around free. She was afraid others might be in danger. Eileen explained that at first, she had been too afraid to tell anyone. Her father had threatened her, and her friend was dead, so she knew what he was capable of. After Susan's body was found, she was still too afraid to talk. And then, over time, she just stopped thinking about it as much. She had to go on with life, she said, and decided to just keep the secret. When they spoke with Eileen's husband, Barry, he told the detectives that years before, His wife had told him about her friend who'd been killed when they were just children. Just a week earlier, she confessed that she'd witnessed the murder at the hands of her father. Detectives left the Lipsker house, believing that Eileen had witnessed the murder. Her details matched what they knew about the crime scene, that Susan had an injury to her skull that had most likely killed her, and which the coroner believed had been from a large boulder nearby, that there was damage to her hand and a crushed ring from her finger and that her body had been found under an old box spring mattress. Additionally, the detectives believed that if Eileen's accounts of her father being a violent pedophile were true, then he could also be capable of murdering Susan Nason. If George had raped the girl, and if she was the first sexual assault victim outside of his own family, he may have decided he couldn't take a chance on her reporting it, so he may have killed her to silence her. It made sense to them. They considered asking Eileen to take a polygraph test, but she'd been pretty skittish about giving them information in the first place, and it took a lot of convincing for them to get her to trust them enough to share the details. They were concerned she may stop cooperating with the investigation, so they decided against asking for the polygraph. Instead, they reopened the case and decided to check out Eileen's account by talking to everyone they could find to try and corroborate her story. They started with her sister Janice, who Eileen said had been in her father's van when he'd picked up Susan Nason. Janice gave details of the abuse she and her family had endured over the years by her father. She told how the family constantly walked on eggshells whenever he was home, never knowing what would set him off, or who he would target that day. Janice said he'd sometimes walk by when she was just sitting and doing homework and hit her in the head with the back of his hand for no apparent reason. She believed that George Franklin hated his family, although she had no idea why. Janice told the investigators that the only one he didn't seem to hate was her sister Eileen. She explained that Eileen had always been her father's favorite, and he'd single her out and give her special treats or take her along with him on errands, something he never did with his other children. She also told the detectives that beginning about the time she was in the third or fourth grade, her father began sexually abusing her. First, there had been inappropriate touching, which later led to fondling. When she was in seventh grade and just entering her teen years, he began forcing sex on her. Janice said she didn't think her youngest sister, Diana, had been sexually abused by her father, but she knew her oldest sister, Kate, had. Janice and Kate shared a room, and Janice would wake up at night sometimes to find her father abusing Kate. In 1984, Janice had actually gone to the Foster City Police to report her suspicions that her father had murdered Susan Nason 15 years earlier. She told the officers who took the report that she'd remembered her father being home around 4 p.m. that day. He was acting peculiar, she said. He sat in his armchair all evening, drinking bourbon and Coke, being very quiet. He stared at her coldly, she said. She remembered it clearly. But when detectives in Foster City spoke with Janice in 1984, they looked through the case records and realized if George Franklin had been home at 4 p.m. the day Susan went missing, there was no way he could have killed her. Susan hadn't disappeared until almost that time. Janice now said that she believed she got the time wrong. It was probably 5.30 or 6 p.m. before she saw her father at home. The detectives who'd taken the 1984 report realized that Janice's original memory of that day gave her father an alibi, and the department declined to investigate her claim. If detectives now believe that Janice might help them verify Eileen's memories from the day Susan went missing, they were in for a big disappointment. Janice told them that while she may have been in the van with her father and sister Eileen that day, she had no memory of Susan Nason getting in the van. As a matter of fact, she didn't remember seeing Susan at all that day. While Detectives Morse and Cassandro had conflicting accounts from Eileen and Janice Franklin, they weren't giving up on reinvestigating Susan Nason's murder. There was enough correct information in Eileen's report to give them hope that the case could be solved. They realized that 20 years had passed and memories could fade. Perhaps not every detail was remembered perfectly, but there was enough to go on, they thought, to continue with their investigation into George Franklin. Some of what they'd learned from Eileen matched up with information that the original homicide detectives had put in the file. Margaret Nason, Susan's mother, had been adamant that her daughter would have never gotten into a car willingly with a stranger. But George Franklin was not a stranger to Susan. Eileen was her best friend, and Janice recalled seeing both Eileen and Susan sitting on her father's lap when Susan would come over to play. She remembered it well because they would play the belly button game with him they'd lift up their shirts so George would poke them in their belly buttons, tickling them. Then he'd lift his shirt, and they'd do the same. Knowing what she did about her father's sexual proclivities with his daughters, this made Janice uneasy, so the image stayed with her. George Franklin had owned a Volkswagen van in 1969, and for several years afterwards. His children remembered that there had been a mattress in the back, but they differed in their memories of whether they'd seen it there before or after Susan went missing. Investigators then checked with the fire station and got George's work records. They were able to confirm that he'd not been on duty on September 22, 1969. They also looked into George Franklin's history since 1969. He and Leah had divorced in 1974 after 17 years of marriage, and he'd moved out of the family home. He'd purchased a duplex in Mountain View and began dating a 20-year-old mother of two. George's new girlfriend, Sharon, moved in with him in 1976. Diana and Eileen would visit him on weekends. They liked Sharon, and their father seemed much calmer and happier now that he was no longer married to their mother. Janice even lived in Mountain View with her father during her last year of high school. Kate was the only one of George's children who cut off ties completely with her father after the divorce. George and Sharon would rent out the duplex and purchase a home together, But George's drinking increased over the time she lived with him, and in 1978, Sharon had had enough and left him. By 1978, George was drinking heavily and also smoking pot regularly. He would sometimes show up for his shifts at the fire station stoned. He openly defied his superiors at work and threw himself into leading a strike when the collective bargaining talks broke down between the firefighters' union and the fire department. After his divorce, George's attitude had worsened, and he'd become increasingly obnoxious at work due to his drinking, leaving him with few friends there. His leadership during the strike was impassioned, but also extremely aggressive and disrespectful to the department. When the strike ended and everyone attempted to get back to work and put hard feelings aside, George was the only one who refused to bury the hatchet. He continued to act rudely towards his superiors and made things tense at work. He got hurt at work twice and then fought the department to declare him permanently disabled. After a contentious legal battle, George won and was awarded the amount of approximately $1,000 per month in disability payments. George moved to Sacramento and divided his time between there and Nevada City. He was taking classes at American River College, studying history like he'd always wanted to before he'd married Leah. George Franklin was home on November 28, 1989, when Detectives Morse and Cassandro arrived to ask him some questions. They told him that they were San Mateo detectives who had been given the assignment of reviewing cold cases in San Mateo County. They said they were reinvestigating the Susan Nason homicide case and wanted to ask him a few questions. The first words out of his mouth were, Am I a suspect? The detectives thought that was odd, but decided to be honest. Yes, they answered. The next question George asked was even more telling. Have you talked to my daughter? They didn't admit that outright, just saying that they would be talking with her as well. They then asked him to accompany them to the local sheriff's department so he could be interviewed. Once at the station, he decided he'd better have an attorney before answering any more questions. He didn't offer an alibi or even deny the charges the investigators decided to place him under arrest for suspicion of murder. When he was being handcuffed, Franklin finally made a single statement. I didn't do it, he protested. I didn't do anything. After he was placed under arrest, George Franklin was served with a search warrant. He handed over the keys to his apartment and detectives returned to search his apartment and vehicle. To obtain the search warrant, Morse reported his conversations with Franklin's daughters, Eileen and Janice. He also discussed the details of those conversations with a detective specializing in sexual crimes against children, who concluded that George Franklin was a pedophile. Investigators believed that Susan Nason's murderer had been a pedophile that she was acquainted with. George Franklin fit that profile. As they searched Franklin's Sacramento apartment, they discovered several items of interest that confirmed this theory. Scabs of pornography and other items of a sexual nature were found, including subscriptions to swinger magazines, articles and stories about young girls having sex with their fathers, books on bestiality, pornographic pictures of women dressed up to look like little girls, pornographic photos of women and some of Franklin himself, and letters from a woman that outlined sex acts and that referred to Franklin as Daddy. The detectives contacted some of the women who Franklin had corresponded with through dating and swinger magazines and newspapers. These women gave several accounts of Franklin asking for nude photos of their underage daughters, stating that he advised that young girls should be introduced to sex before they hit puberty, preferably with their fathers, and that he asked the women if they themselves had ever had sex with their fathers. Based on the theory that George Franklin was a pedophile, who had motive and opportunity to kidnap, rape, and kill Susan Nason, along with what detectives believed was evidence that Eileen Franklin had indeed witnessed the murder, Franklin was transported back to San Mateo County and booked on suspicion of first-degree murder. The detectives contacted Eileen Franklin and told her that her father was in custody and was being charged with Susan Nason's murder. Soon after his arrest, The media became aware that George Franklin, a retired firefighter, had been charged with the murder of an eight-year-old girl in 1969. A journalist received a tip that the person who brought the details of the crime to light was a family member of George Franklin and rumored to be one of his children. It didn't take long before they started contacting the Franklin family members to request an interview. Barry Lipsker, Eileen's husband, seemed to be excited by all the media attention he began fielding offers from reporters and news channels to interview Eileen. Meanwhile, the prosecutor's case against George Franklin hit a snag. After the arrest, Eileen confessed that she had only recently recovered the memory about Susan's murder. Initially, she told the detectives that she had buried the memory of that awful day and hadn't talked about it because she was afraid of her father's threats. She never said that she'd forgotten the incident entirely but Eileen had told several versions of how she came to report the murder after 20 years. In October, a month before she'd spoken with detectives for the first time, Eileen called her mother to tell her that she had seen her father murder Susan Nason. Leah was horrified, but was convinced her ex-husband was capable of such violence. Eileen told her mother that she'd visualized the murder while she was under hypnosis. Just before Thanksgiving, Eileen also called her sister Kate to tell her that she had something to share with her that, quote, was going to change her life, unquote. Kate remembered that Eileen was very excited to share this news. Kate wasn't surprised that Eileen had some drama to share with her. That was one of the reasons she had struck out on her own once she became an adult. Not only had her family been supremely dysfunctional throughout her entire childhood and adolescent years, but her sisters, particularly Eileen and Janice, seemed to continue to attract and even thrive on drama in their adult lives. Kate had left home as soon as possible, enrolled in college, and moved out on her own. Her mother Leah had returned to school and eventually enrolled in law school. Leah often had a group of students over to her house and formed a study group. Kate began dating Ellen, one of the law students who attended Leah's study group. When Ellen graduated from law school, he and Kate were married. Kate had worked hard to put her terrible childhood and abuse behind her and create a happy life with the man she loved. So the fights, problems, and drama that continued to be created by her sisters were very unwelcome. Kate would say that Eileen was the one who still wanted and needed the most attention from her family. She had been her father's favorite and had relished that role. Now she felt slighted by her family and often complained that she was ignored and unloved by her mother and siblings. She would sometimes call out of the blue to report some slight by one family member or another and angrily yell and complain about her problems. Money and possessions had always been very important to Eileen. She always said that she would marry a rich man and live in a mansion. After a bumpy young adulthood, she had managed to do just that. Barry was a successful technology consultant who made a six-figure salary. She and Barry lived in a 3,000-square-foot house in a Southern California suburb with their two children, ages four and one. Eileen had a nanny, wore designer clothes, and drove a Mercedes-Benz. Still, it seemed that it was not enough to make her happy. She and Barry had a volatile relationship. Eileen had tried filing for divorce in 1988, citing her husband as jealous, controlling, and obsessed with money. Kate would say that it was like Eileen had married their father. Barry doted on his first child, a daughter, while seeming to resent his son. Kate had gone to visit the couple after repeated invitations by Eileen, and had witnessed Barry berating Eileen for every perceived flaw, no matter how small. He claimed that she paid too much attention to her son, a baby, and that she was turning him into a sissy. He wanted to know about every penny Eileen spent, and then screamed at her for wasting their money. Eileen screamed back at her husband while the children cowered. When Eileen tried to leave him, Barry would threaten that he would take their daughter and flee the country, and Eileen would never see her again. She also feared that he would find a way to hide their assets, and she'd end up penniless. Eventually, she withdrew her petition for a divorce. Now Eileen was calling Kate to tell her about some big news that would change her and her family's life, and Kate really didn't want to get sucked into Eileen's drama. Eileen told her about witnessing Susan Nason's murder 20 years earlier. Kate was skeptical and asked her if she was sure. Eileen told her that she had been having nightmares, so she went back into therapy. She then had a dream in which she saw her father kill Susan. She went on to say that she'd called the DA's office to report this information. After Kate heard Eileen say that she'd recovered this memory in a dream, she was skeptical. She asked her again if she was sure. Eileen began screaming into the phone that Kate didn't believe her. That wasn't what she'd said, Kate assured her, trying to calm her down. She told her that she and Barry were adults and that they should do what they thought was best. Kate didn't really know what to think. She just wanted to get off the phone before Eileen had a complete meltdown. She knew from past history that disagreeing with Eileen would result in her receiving multiple angry and accusing phone calls from her over the following days. Kate told Eileen to keep her posted on any updates and got off the phone as quickly as possible. She figured that once Eileen had told police about her revelatory dream, they would probably dismiss the claim out of hand. A few days later, Janice called Kate to tell her that her father had been arrested. She said it was going to be, quote, the biggest case San Mateo County has ever seen, unquote. Oh, great, Kate thought. More drama. The summer before she reported the murder to police, Eileen told another version of her memory to her brother George. He had come for a visit, and one night Eileen shared with him that while under hypnosis, she had remembered her father molesting and killing Susan Nason. George hadn't believed her. After their father's arrest, Eileen called George Jr. and said she'd actually recovered the memory while in a psychotherapy session. She asked him to please not reveal that to anyone. He told her he wouldn't lie for her. In February, two months after his father was charged with murder, Eileen called him again. This time she told him that she hadn't recovered the memory in therapy, but while having a nightmare. All of these conflicting stories of when and how Eileen Franklin recalled the murder became a problem the prosecution would have to overcome at trial. Other problems directly related to Eileen's actions leading up to the trial would also arise. In December, she told the prosecutor Martin Murray That she wanted to visit her father, who was being held in the San Mateo County jail. She explained that she wanted to get him to, quote, tell the truth and confess, unquote. Murray said he didn't advise her to do so, but he couldn't stop her if that was what she decided to do. Eileen did visit George Franklin in jail in December 1989, but he did not confess. Eileen would report to Murray that when she asked him to tell the truth, he'd pointed to a sign posted in the visiting area that read, "'Conversations may be monitored.'" Eileen and Barry also gave several media interviews, which the prosecution also advised against. It is always a risk to put information out to the media before a trial, as it may affect the case. Soon after her visit to the jail, Eileen agreed to appear on the Today Show. The national program had become interested in the story. After Eileen gave several interviews to newspapers, including the San Jose Mercury News and the Los Angeles Times. In these interviews, she said she'd recalled the details of the murder through a series of flashbacks she'd had in the months before coming forward. On the Today Show segment, which aired on January 22, 1990, Eileen went before the cameras to say that a few years earlier, she began to remember details of her childhood. One particularly horrific memory that suddenly emerged was of her father murdering her best friend. Eileen said after being in therapy she had discovered that she'd repressed the memory for 20 years. On the same segment psychiatrist Dr. Lenore Tur explained repressed memories to today show viewers. She said that trauma or extreme terror can cause a person to block out memories that are too terrible to remember, but that painful experience can be recovered by a smell, a sound, a time of year, or quote, because one's own child is the age one was at the time of the original event. Unquote. At the preliminary hearing of George Franklin's murder trial in May 1990, Eileen appeared on the stand to detail just what she remembered about the day Susan Nason was murdered. Now she elaborated on what specifically triggered her memories about that awful day. Quote, I was sitting on the sofa in my family room and I was holding my son, Eileen testified. My daughter was playing on the floor. She said something to me which caused me to look down at her. At that moment, she very closely resembled Susan, and I remembered Susan sitting there and seeing my father with the rock above his head, unquote. Strangely, Eileen had never mentioned that the image of her daughter had triggered her memories before. I don't know if the prosecution recalled that this very scenario had been suggested by Dr. Tur on the Today Show. Largely on the testimony of Eileen's recalled memories, George Franklin was convicted of first-degree murder in November of 1990. He was sentenced to life in prison. But that wasn't the end of the story. The entire outcome of the trial hinged on the reliability of repressed memories, but the psychiatric community was divided on the issue. Many believed that the syndrome was especially unreliable when used as evidence in the courtroom. The American Psychological Association would research recovered memory syndrome and ultimately issue two reports, one supporting recovered memories as valid and one debunking them. They would caution that, quote, at this point, it is impossible without corroborative evidence to distinguish a true memory from a false one, unquote. Eileen Franklin's claim that she had a recovered memory of her father committing murder was viewed with increasing skepticism as more details emerged. It was learned that her memories had not been recalled during a moment of spontaneous clarity as she had claimed on the witness stand, but while under hypnosis in a therapist's office. As a matter of fact, California law specifically prohibits testimony that is elicited while a witness is under hypnosis. The law states, quote, The testimony of a witness who has undergone hypnosis for the purpose of restoring his memory of the events in issue is inadmissible in all matter relating to those events. The idea of trauma being repressed and then recalled years later was widely covered in the media after the Franklin case. So much so that therapists began seeing increased numbers of patients uncovering memories of childhood sexual abuse soon after the case hit the media. These recovered memories included bizarre stories of child sex rings and ritualistic satanic abuse, including rape and murder. Professionals who studied these claims came to believe that therapists were unwittingly using suggestive techniques that caused patients to recall events that never happened. This would later be labeled as false memory syndrome. Later, Eileen's claim became even more suspect when she told investigators that she had recovered memories of other murders her father had committed. She said she now recalled that her father would take her along in his van to pick up women that were either hitchhiking or stranded by the side of the road. Her presence was used by her father to put the women at ease, so they would easily accept an offer of help or a ride. Eileen believed she had been present when her father had murdered at least two other women. Unsolved cases from San Mateo County were reviewed and it was found that in the mid-1970s, two teenage girls had been raped and murdered in Pacifica, a town just south of San Francisco. Rape kits had been collected from both women. George Franklin was then asked to provide blood and hair samples to match against the evidence in the two additional murder cases. When the lab test results came back, they excluded George as a suspect. Franklin's attorneys filed an appeal on his behalf, citing several trial errors. First, that the prosecutor had leaned heavily on convincing the jury of Franklin's guilt by claiming because he'd not denied his guilt, for example, when visited by Eileen in jail, this in essence had constituted a confession. The second major issue brought up on appeal was the prosecutor's claim that Eileen Franklin could not have known about certain details from the crime scene, such as Susan's smashed ring and injured hand, and that the body had been hidden under a mattress. But the defense had discovered that there were several articles that included these details, plus photographs of the area where the body was found, that had been published in newspapers and aired on news broadcasts. The prosecutor had claimed that the articles found in the coroner's file had not included this information, but the defense wanted to present other articles that did include these details, including some that had been published in 1969 and at the 20th anniversary of Susan's murder in 1989. During Franklin's trial, the judge had not allowed the defense to argue that the details Eileen provided about the crime were based on news reports that she'd heard or seen as a girl, not by a recovered memory. In fact, Eileen's mother and sisters would later say that they recalled discussing the news stories about Susan's murder in the weeks following the discovery of the body. Later, it would be determined that everything Eileen claimed to know about the murder was either unverifiable such as what Susan had supposedly said or did on the day of the crime, or it was already in the public domain. Finally, Franklin's attorneys argued that because the state Supreme Court had already ruled that testimony based on memories recovered under hypnosis were unreliable, Eileen should not have been allowed to testify about these details that were later determined to have been recovered under hypnosis. Eileen and Janice both testified falsely that Eileen had never been hypnotized, In 1995, a district court judge agreed that these trial errors had occurred and overturned George Franklin's conviction. He did not base his ruling on whether recovered memories were real, but rather that, quote, admissibility of the memory is but the first step. It does not establish that the memory is worthy of belief, unquote, and that it was incumbent upon prosecutors to present validating evidence to the jury to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. The following year, Prosecutors declined to retry the case, and George Franklin walked out of prison after serving six years. The prosecution's case had been badly damaged by not only the revelation that Eileen Franklin had recovered her so called memories under hypnosis, but also by additional information that was revealed after the trial. Eileen's sister Diana later submitted a statement to the court swearing to the fact that she saw Eileen watch a news account showing the murder scene, something Eileen had denied during the trial. Eileen's own mother, also a prosecution witness, came forward later to say that she was skeptical of the whole idea of recovered memories. She also went on record that she now didn't believe her daughter's story. I realized it was all wrong, Leah Franklin said in a 1995 interview. I got some information, I believed it, and I later found out it was all wrong. As to why Eileen may have constructed a false memory of murder, there are many theories Almost from the time immediately after Susan was found murdered, Eileen's family speculated that George may have been involved. Leah even accused him of the murder to his face in 1978. Janice, Leah, and Eileen had conversations over the years where they repeated their belief that George had killed Susan Nason. Also, Eileen had experienced her father's violence and molestation of children firsthand. But she also loved her father enough to allow him access to her own children, and also to marry a man who exhibited some of his same characteristics. Eileen was in an emotionally abusive and dysfunctional marriage and felt trapped. Like her mother, she'd had children that she could not provide for on her own, nor did she feel capable of caring for them alone. Also like her mother, she had achieved financial security through her marriage to Barry, something she'd always aspired to, but was paying the price by being tethered to a controlling and abusive partner. But Eileen also craved the drama and attention that being married to this type of person provided. Like Kate had observed, Eileen was recreating a version of her own dysfunctional upbringing. She had been the favored child of George Franklin, doted on and given attention, but also abused and sexually molested. Love and abuse were intertwined into one great drama, and this dysfunction and chaos fulfilled a need that may have become hardwired in Eileen from the time she was a little girl. Maybe this perfect storm of misery had caused Eileen the need to identify someone as the monster, somewhere to place the blame. By believing the very worst of her father, she could comfortably point to him as the start and end of all her problems. Maybe she had seen the face of Susan Nason reflected in her daughter that day. Eileen and Susan looked similar to one another, and Eileen's daughter resembled her. That resemblance may have reminded her, twenty years after her friend's tragic death, of simple childhood memories. But those memories had been tainted by a horrific and violent act that had taken her friend's life. Cue the monster George Franklin to explain the mystery of her untimely death. But there's one other possibility, which is what the detectives and prosecutor continue to believe, and that's that George Franklin had murdered Susan Nason. Maybe Eileen had witnessed it, and maybe she hadn't but in either case, it's very likely she truly believed she was a witness to murder. By connecting some of her childhood memories with details she heard over the years about the murder, and then adding in family gossip and innuendo about her father's guilt, Eileen convinced herself that it had actually happened. Or maybe it actually did happen. In 1991, Eileen Franklin's book, Sins of the Father, which she co-wrote with William Wright, was published. She went on a nationwide book tour and appeared on 60 Minutes, Oprah, and Larry King Live to promote it. She claimed that her father was a serial murderer in her book and claimed that he was soon to be charged with additional murders. Soon afterwards, George Franklin was cleared of any involvement in these cold cases. A television movie titled Fatal Memories about Eileen Franklin and her recovered memory of Susan Nason's murder was released in 1992. By the time of its airing, Eileen's husband, Barry Lipsker, had died of heart disease. He was 45. Eileen moved out of California with her children. She said she was fearful for herself and her children now that her father was free. Susan's parents, Don and Margaret, began divorce proceedings during the trial. Don started his own construction business, and Margaret became an administrative assistant in the district attorney's office. She met a man in her church and they married and moved to the East Coast, far away from the town where she had so many good but also painful memories of her youngest child. Leah Franklin finished her law degree and joined a law firm soon after her divorce from George. She has since remarried and still lives in Northern California. Diane Franklin and George Jr. are both still single and live in Northern California as well. Kate is still married to her attorney husband, and lives in the San Francisco Bay Area. Janice died in 2006. Eileen remarried and lives in the Pacific Northwest. George Franklin is 79 years old and lives in Southern California. I don't know if any of his children stay in touch with him. Susan Nason's hand, left in a jar of formaldehyde in the evidence room of the Foster City Police Department, disappeared sometime over the years the rumor that circulated was that a police officer who left the department took it away with him as a souvenir. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. What a story, huh? It definitely rated a two-parter, I think. I hope you found it as fascinating as I did. My last word about this story is that I hope that all of George Franklin's children who are still living have found a measure of happiness and peace in their adult lives. I also wish peace and good memories for Dawn and Margaret Nason if they are still living. What a terrible thing to outlive your child and lose her in such a traumatic way. They both believed that George Franklin was their daughter's murderer and it was a serious blow to them when he was set free. Next time I have another story about a recovered memory. It will be a little different. I'll be sharing a story that asks... Could someone commit murder and then forget about it? You won't want to miss it. That will be available Monday, March 25th. Next week for those of you listening on the regular feed. A new episode of Let's Talk About True Crime will be available tomorrow, March 19th. Me and my guest host will be discussing the documentary, Abducted in Plain Sight. It's going to be a good one. Don't miss it. Subscribe today. You can find links in the show notes and at truecrimepodcast.com. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another.